Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Jesus said to his disciples, a little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. So the opening to this week's gospel passage gives us an opportunity to uh, talk about one of the Eastertide traditions that you will see here at All Saints and a lot of other kind of traditional um, liturgical parishes of various traditions. Um, This is not just an Anglican thing. Um, And that tradition is the Paschal Candle. The Paschal candle is this large white candle that we see next to the next to the pulpit. And so let's talk about that a little bit. The word Paschal in its name uh, refers to the Greek word for Passover or for Easter. You see, in most languages, the words for Easter and Passover are exactly the same. English and German are kind of the two main exceptions to the rule. Um, Why that is is another issue. Um, The Venerable Bede had some discussion on that, which we're not sure we totally trust, but um, he had some polemics involved on that. But um, for most languages, Easter and Passover are exactly the same word. Because the church has always seen the events of Easter as a fulfillment of the Old Testament type established in the Passover. So, for example, just as the Feast of Passover was the annual remembrance and celebration of God rescuing the Israelites from slavery to Egypt, so Easter is our annual remembrance and celebration of God rescuing us from slavery to sin, the greater Egypt. Just as Passover culminated with the sacrifice of a spotless lamb for the sins of God's people, so did the first Easter which includes the events of Holy Week, by the way, include the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, who was the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world. So from a New Covenant standpoint, Easter and Passover are one. They are the same thing because Easter is a fulfillment of the Passover. So the Paschal candle here is a symbol of the Lord Jesus' resurrection. Now, traditionally, it would be blessed and lit as part of the Easter vigil service, um, when you have an Easter Easter vigil service, especially if it's one of the more um, old-school, traditional styles of candle that are actually made out of full beeswax, and they would um, carve some things into the wax as part of all that. Um, Ours, we are not going to carve into. It's a little too expensive for that. (laughs) We'll just fill it up with the the proper oil at the proper time. Uh, But, but, It would be lit as part of the Easter vigil service, really kicking off the Easter vigil service while the deacon chants the exultet hymn. References to the exultet and similar hymns in the writings of St. Augustine, St. Jerome, and other of the early Latin fathers indicates that the Paschal candle was a very, very early part of the Western church's tradition regarding Easter. So all of the part of the, back in those days that spoke Latin um, would have used some form of the, of the Paschal candle very, very early on, like late 3rd century, early 4th century, so it seems anyway. Now, uh, we, will, we keep the, the Paschal candle here in the chancel throughout Eastertide, and we, would, we light it for all the major services during this time. So every time we have communion, every time we have public gatherings for the offices and that sort of thing. 
We would also light, and we also do light the Paschal candle for baptisms and often for funerals as well. Now on the Feast of the Ascension, when we remember Jesus' bodily return to heaven, the candle is traditionally extinguished after the gospel reading. And we will be having the Feast of the Ascension, by the way, on the Wednesday night before the Ascension. That's how we do things here. So um, keep your eye on the announcements for, for, for specifics on that. So, but we would, we would extinguish the candle after the gospel reading. And then when we recess at the end of the service, we take the candle back to its usual place um, by, the, by the baptismal font. So not only does the Paschal candle then represent Christ's resurrection, but it also represents his physical bodily presence with the disciples during the 40 days between Easter and the Ascension. So in its plainest sense, that's what Jesus is referring to in the opening of our gospel. So please turn your Bibles to John 16, 16. You can find this in page 173 in the prayer book or page, I believe, 841, maybe 849 in your pew Bible. I looked it up and then I forgot. So, John 16, 16. A little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples amongst themselves, What is this that he saith unto us, a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, and because I go to the Father? They said, therefore, what is this that he saith, a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. The disciples, not yet knowing how the next few days would play out, they don't know what Jesus means. But we have the benefit of the Gospels, we have the benefit of the hindsight, and so we can see that the first a little while is the period between Good Friday and Easter. The second a little while is the period between Easter and the Ascension, the period represented here by our Paschal candle. And again, as I said, this is the plainest meaning of the text. But there's a bit of a problem with that plain meaning And that's Jesus' phrase at the end of our passage, or at the end of what we just read, rather. And ye shall see me because I go to the Father. The 40 days when Jesus is physically with the disciples and they see him are before he returns to the Father. So there must be something else going on. There must be another deep meaning, as is often the case in the fourth gospel. Whenever you read John's gospel, he's doing that all the time. It's like an onion. Indeed, the context within chapter 16 gives us a bit of a clue as to this deeper meaning. Our passage here that we just read is sandwiched between the promise of the coming of the Holy Ghost to empower the church. So that's right before our reading. And that's also our gospel reading next week, which is a little strange that we read the second part and then the first part. But that's the way we're going to do that. And the other side of our passage, after our passage, is a further explanation of the coming ascension of Jesus to the Father. And then we, of course, also have our Lord's own explanation to the disciples in the rest of today's passage. So let's pick up on verse 19. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. When we read the book of Acts and the epistles, we see that the sorrow that the disciples experienced then between Good Friday and Easter, that does not return, even after Jesus physically leaves them in the ascension. The disciples had been cowering in fear between Good Friday and Easter. They were hiding out. But the period between the Ascension and Pentecost, they're still behind closed doors, but it's marked by expectant prayer instead. To the outsider, this might look very similar, right? In both cases, they're behind closed doors. They're not actively ministering. They seem to be hiding. But the reason why they're by themselves, why they're isolated, why they're behind closed doors is completely different. During the time of their sorrow, they're afraid. During the time between Pentecost and the Ascension, they're waiting. St. John Chrysostom points out that the reference here to a woman when she is in travail, very appropriate for Mother's Day, by the way, that that has many echoes in the Old Testament prophets. And I particularly found the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah to be fond of using the birth pangs sort of imagery. So for the prophets, the woman in travail imagery is usually part of a warning about coming judgment from God. The prophets say that the folks who will be judged, whether they're talking to the pagan Gentile nations or whether they're talking to sinful Israel, they're going to suffer like a woman in labor prior to the culmination of God's judgment. Okay, you think it's bad now, just wait. This is just the birth pangs. When applied to Israel and Judah, these prophecies are particularly referring to the coming exile when they would be kicked out of the Holy Land because of their idolatry and their sin. This seems to contrast pretty starkly with Jesus' use to, the, to this birth pangs imagery when he talks about the joy that comes as soon as she is delivered of the child. But remember that the exile of God's people was always meant to be temporary. I just finished reading Ezra and Nehemiah not too long ago. And one of the things that happens is that Ezra and Nehemiah realized the exile is about to be over because they did the math when looking at the prophets. The exile was to be temporary. The exiles would return. God would not abandon his covenant or his people. So in this sense, when we look at the exile in this sense and this imagery, we can see that the disciples are kind of like the exiles. Everything they had hoped for seemed to have fallen apart when Jesus was arrested. It looked like God had forsaken them. The promises that the Lord made seemed to have been proven empty, but it wasn't going to last. We have the resurrection. And there God shows that he is indeed faithful. But we should also remember that Jesus is the covenant head of God's people. He is the promised heir of King David. He is indeed, as it said on the cross, the king of the Jews. 
ultimately the exile falls on him, not on the disciples. He's the one who takes on the punishment. He's the one who takes on the judgment that is due his people. And then it's by his blood and by his resurrection that the exile is ended. It's by his blood and resurrection that that redemption is accomplished. So then the disciples here, they're supposed to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Next week, we're going to see why Jesus's physical departure in the ascension is ultimately for the disciples and by extension, our joy. We're going to talk about that next week, I believe. (laughs) Um, When we talk about the passage about the coming of the Holy Spirit. But for now, I'd like us to briefly consider the ways in which the Lord Jesus is indeed still present with us despite his physical absence. How how we see him not only in spite of the fact that he's gone to the Father, but as Jesus said in our passage, because he's gone to the Father. So first we see him and we have him in his word, in his teachings. The coming of the Holy Spirit makes the writing of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament possible. It marks the big change between the disciples not getting it and the disciples being the one by whom God gives his word. And that's what gives us the benefit of hindsight that the disciples in our passage lack. Second, we have the Lord's presence, the Lord Jesus' presence in the church as the body of Christ. The ministry of Jesus continues today through the church. And then third, we have Christ's sacramental presence in Holy Communion, whereby he assures us of our union with him, our union with each other, and our inheritance as his brethren. And it's by the Holy Spirit that we continue to see Jesus through these three means of his presence. And because of this, as we read, your joy no man taketh from you. Now, St. Augustine, however, sees yet another layer in, his, in this promise that we will see Jesus. Again, we're in the Gospel of John. There's always more layers. And St. Augustine sees this in the promise of our own resurrection. He observes that the same apostle who records this exchange between Jesus and the, and the apostles, he's also the one who writes this later in the epistle. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's 1 John 3, 2. So in other words, there is a further appearance of Jesus that these other presences point to, and that is the appearance when he returns and takes us home with him. The appearance when he gives us our glorified bodies that are like his glorified body, when we're freed from sin, from death, and from that nearsighted myopia that comes from being in a fallen world. This is the appearance when he sets everything to rights and he makes this world even better than new. Because you see, we are indeed still in a kind of exile. We are in an exile where we continue to struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're in an exile where we struggle and battle with temptations, where we see in a mirror darkly, where creation groans waiting for its final redemption. But that redemption is on the way. That's the promise of Easter. That's the down payment we received with our Lord's resurrection. And this is the hope of our Gospels 
a little while. You may recall that St. John also prophesied that the devil is fighting desperately against you and me and the entire church, quote, because he knows that he has a short time. Revelation 12, 12. The world, the flesh, and the devil know that their time is short, and we know it too. And indeed, we know that our time is also short, temporally speaking. This is both a comfort to us and a challenge. It's a comfort because we know that we are not going to endure this exile for very long when we look at the big picture. We know that it has an end. We can take the long view because we've been given that long view by the Lord. Our sufferings in this world, for the sake of the gospel, they are temporary and they are going to end in such glory that the sufferings can't even stand up by any comparison. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. But this a little while is also a challenge for us, a challenge to persevere, to keep on following our master and doing what he says. Our colic for the day, in, in our colic, we prayed for the new converts who were traditionally brought into the church uh, during the Easter celebration. And we prayed, grant unto all those who are admitted into the fellowship of Christ's religion that they may avoid those things that are contrary to their profession and follow all such things as are agreeable to the same. In a cosmic sense, we are all those new converts who need the prayer. So may we run the race well. May we hold fast to our profession. May we keep our eyes on Jesus, remembering that he is indeed with us, that we see him through the word, through the sacrament, through his people, that we are empowered in our faith by his Holy Spirit. And when we feel weak, when our joy slips, remember the words of our Lord a little while. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.